well, good morning. Things before we begin. All right. Um, I have a nagging cough. So I just, I want you to know that up front. That's why I'm using the floor mic. Some of you might think I'm using the floor mic because of last time. <laughs> That's not why. Um, so uh, there's nothing you can do about it uh, physically, but pray for me. You know, I don't want that to be uh, a hindrance today. I've got my water. I have to remember to use it. Um, and then secondly, those of you who are in the adult Sunday school class, the um, difficult passages, you're going to hear a lot of overlap today. And um, Doug and I didn't coordinate at all. So uh, I just say that to, to um, say, be on the watch for that if you, if you were in there. Uh, and be thankful to the Lord for how he coordinates things. So, okay, so uh, over the last several weeks, um, Penny has been leading us through an exposition of the Lord's Prayer, which in Matthew is found right in the middle of a larger section uh, we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And as he's walked us through uh, the prayer's first five petitions, we've seen that Jesus' purpose was not merely to provide us with a pattern for how to pray, but ultimately with a pattern for how to live daily life as his disciples. And so last week, as we considered the, the prayer's fifth petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we were reminded of the transforming power of the love of Christ that it changes absolutely everything, and that we who have been forgiven so much must be ready and willing by the grace of our Lord to forgive others even in the most difficult of circumstances. And now this morning, we have an opportunity to take up the sixth and final petition. And so I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Matthew 6, verses 19, 9 through 13. you also find it printed in the bulletin. Our focus this morning will be on verse 13, but we'll begin by reading the prayer in its entirety. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we bow before you and we are thankful. We are thankful for your faithfulness and we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your son and we are thankful for what he has taught us to pray. Lord, make us mindful of it today and give us insight into what you call us to pray. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So over the years, it's been reported, although it has yet to be verified historically, 
that early in the 20th century, a small advertisement appeared in newspapers throughout London. And it read like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. What an ad, right? It's got to be one of the most outrageous ones ever published. After all, what kind of fool thought he could inspire men to join his adventure with such a dismal outlook? And yet, I'm sure many of you recognize that this is the ad Sir Ernest Shackleton is said to have placed in the hope of recruiting men for his 1914 Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition an outlandish scheme to be the first men to cross the frozen continent on foot. And yet by some estimates, for whatever reason, over 5,000 men responded. <laughs> Can you believe that? I wonder how many of us, given the opportunity, would have answered such an ad. <laughs> Maybe Cole. <laughs> <coughs> Now, of course, we're not polar explorers, and I'm sure we're not contending with the sorts of dangers Shackleton and his men faced on a daily basis. But friends, we're still on a hazardous journey. Jesus said, come, follow me. And if we've responded in faith to his summons, we've become pilgrims in a hostile world, one which we have been told will hate us because of his name. And this is precisely why Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, knowing that for us the road ahead would be difficult and that we'd have daily need for protection, taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so as we turn our attention to this petition, I'd like us to consider it by taking up its two parts in turn, kind of like two sides of the same coin. And so beginning with the first half of the petition, lead us not into temptation. There are two things that I think immediately stand out, the negative form of the petition and the word temptation. So let's consider its form first. Notice that the first five petitions have all been framed in the positive. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and so on. But in this one, we begin, lead us not. This is striking, isn't it? Normally, as needy creatures, we want God to do something for us, don't we? Like give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts. But here we don't. And this brings us to the second thing that stands out, the word temptation, which can mean both a time of testing and enticement to sin. Now, generally, when we think of the word temptation, I suspect we imagine times when we feel lured into doing something we know we shouldn't. Like when we're alone and we see a chance to sneak another cookie 
after mama has already said no more. <coughs> or when we're talking with our friends and we have a chance to say something unkind, perhaps even hateful, about a person who isn't around. But if this is what the word temptation means here, why then do we ask God not to lead us into it? Does he ever lead us in order to entice us to sin? Of course he doesn't. After all, consider the deeply relational context of this prayer. We're not like the Gentiles who, lacking any confidence in the identity of the God or gods they address, they blabber on and on, hoping to gain his or her or their attention. No, we approach God in faith as his adopted sons and daughters, and we address him as our heavenly Father, the one who sees and hears in secret and who knows our every need even before we ask him to supply it. And we know that he desires to give good gifts to his children, don't we? And so, of course, he doesn't lead us into sin. Besides, Scripture assures us that God doesn't do this. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But if the word temptation in this petition doesn't mean enticement to sin, then it has to mean time of testing. And this has led some to suggest that it's a specific reference to the severe time of testing which will precede the coming of our Lord, like we read about in Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance... I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Same word. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on earth. In that case, our prayer in this petition, rather than a request for God's daily sparing us trials, would instead amount to something like, Father, please don't make us go through that awful ordeal before you return. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with such an idea. I mean, after all, who wants to go through that? But the problem with taking the word temptation in that way is that there's no thee in the text. We're not taught to pray, lead us not into the temptation, but simply temptation. It's a general idea, not a specific one. And it carries the sense of common times of testing that any believer might encounter in life, not just those who will live to see the second coming of our Lord. So does God actually lead us, lead his people into such times? Yes, God tests his people. We see this time and again in Scripture. Let me just draw your attention just a few examples which use the same word for, te for temptation we find here in the first half of the petition. Consider for a moment Abraham. We all remember the unimaginable command he received from the Lord, don't we? Take now your son, God said to him, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. But friends, this was his special son, his only son, as the text says, the one through whom God had promised to bless the entire world. How could he obey such a command? But more to the point, what was God doing in giving such a command? Well, Scripture provides us with a clear answer. When we read in Genesis 22:1, now it came about that God tested Abraham. Or consider the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. You remember when God had just miraculously intervened to save them from the house of Pharaoh and promised them life in a land flowing with milk and honey? Nevertheless, they grumbled against him and distrusted his promises. And so God led them into the wilderness to wander for 40 years, feeding them on manna alone. Why did he do this? Well, Moses explains to us in Deuteronomy 8.16 that he did so in order that he might test them. And finally, what about Jesus? Matthew 4.1 we read that Jesus, immediately after being baptized by John and having heard the glorious voice of his Father coming from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. Clearly, God tests his people. Perhaps you're here today and you're surprised to hear this. And you're wondering, why would God do this? And there are a couple things we can say at this point. First, God tests his people in order to demonstrate to a watching world what faithfulness to him looks like. That it involves fearing him with a holy fear like Abraham and loving him with all our heart and with all our soul. Church history is filled with stories of men and women whose faith was tested in just this way. Some of you are perhaps familiar with the incredible testimony of Polycarp, the second century bishop of Smyrna, who when tempted to worship the Roman emperor, instead of God, refused. And he was later speared and burned at the stake. Swear the oath to Caesar and I will release you, the governor said to him. Deny Christ. But Polycarp, straightening his frail body and lifting his aged head, answered in a clear voice, <coughs> For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You see, sometimes God uses testing like a refiner's fire in order to reveal the genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold. And second, God tests his people in order to make us stronger. The Apostle Paul knew this well. Although he was repeatedly imprisoned, shipwrecked, and beaten times without number, even stoned at one point, nevertheless, he was able to say in Romans 5, 3 through 5, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint. Friends, do you see what a precious gift 
God's trials are for his people. That he uses, <coughs> he uses them to fortify us against the dangers we might face. And that even through them, he's causing all things to work together for good. To those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so as we turn to the second half of the petition, deliver us from evil. Perhaps you're sitting there saying, wait a second. If God's testing is good for us, which it clearly is, why then are we asking him to spare us from it? Indeed, aren't we encouraged in James 1, 2 to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. But friends, while it's right for us to rejoice in God's trials, this doesn't mean we should seek them out. And this is where I think the analogy of the coin is so helpful for us as we consider the two halves of this petition. On the one side of the coin, lead us not into temptation, we're asking God to spare us the trials he might bring our way because we recognize our own weakness. But on this side of the coin, we're calling on him to deliver us if, in his infinite wisdom, he determines that we must face them. So what exactly is the nature of the danger? And why are we not up to the challenge? To fully appreciate this, we have to consider what is meant by the word evil. Now, a couple of things make it clear that the word here actually means the evil one, namely Satan. First, there are several places in Scripture where this same word is clearly used to refer to him. In Matthew 13, 19, for example, in the parable of the sower, Jesus says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, same word, that is Satan, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And later on in verse 38, as Jesus is explaining this parable, he says, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one, again, Satan. And likewise, in John 17, 15, when Jesus is praying to his father on behalf of his disciples, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Again, same word, Satan in view. Clearly, Scripture refers to Satan as the evil one. And the second thing that indicates that the word here means the evil one is that Satan has already been linked with Jesus' temptation earlier in Matthew's gospel. Take a closer look at Matthew 4, 1. And notice who's doing the leading and who's doing the tempting. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You see, God was the one who led Jesus by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. But it was Satan who tempted him, which is immediately highlighted for us when, when he's called the tempter in verse 3. And this illustrates a fundamental biblical truth. God uses Satan as a tool when he tests us. Although Satan is bent on harming us, God is working for his glory and our good.
And so in light of this, I think it's clear that in asking God to deliver us from evil, what we're really asking him to do is to rescue us from the devil. And friends, this is really important. Too often our failures when we're tempted are accelerated because we don't fully appreciate the magnitude of the danger we face. Not recognizing ahead of time that the challenge is too much for us. We rush headlong into tempting situations, and the results are often disastrous. Remember Peter? Jesus warned him in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, saying, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And Peter basically responded, I'm ready. And of course, we know what happened, don't we? He denied knowing Jesus three times. Was he really ready? Did he truly understand what he was up against? Paul warns us in Ephesians 6.12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, it reminds me of C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Screwtape Letters, which is in the form of a sort of how-to-tempt manual <laughs> written by one tempter to another. In one letter, Screwtape, the senior tempter, gives Wormwood, the junior tempter, the following advice on how to ensnare a young man by leading him <coughs> to disbelieve in the one who was tempting him. He writes, The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he can't believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. Friends, Satan is real, and he's our enemy, and he's much, much too powerful for any of us. This is what we confess when we sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, isn't it? For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us, work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Friends, do you believe this? Do you recognize your own inability to face him and to bear up under his attacks? If you do, it's great. I think that's the first step in overcoming temptation. But if we can't trust in ourselves, who then should we trust in for our deliverance? God's word is clear, isn't it? The Bible reveals time and again that our only sure hope for deliverance is in the Lord. David knew this well. And this is why, having been delivered by God from the hand of Saul, he sings in Psalm 18, 1 and 2, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my fortress and my rock, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Indeed, this is the reason Jesus taught us to pray, Father, deliver us from evil. And although we pray fervently 
for God to spare us from temptation. Sometimes, in his infinite wisdom, he tests us. Which is why we're told in 1 Peter 4.12 not to be surprised when we face it as though some strange thing were happening to us. We need to recognize that until our Lord returns, we're going to have continual need of his deliverance. But what does that look like? Well, God's deliverance can always take the form of the miraculous, can't it? Just think about Moses and Jonah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Lazarus. The list goes on and on. The Bible's filled with incredible stories of God's deliverance, isn't it? He did it for them, and he surely could do it for us. But I think James directs our focus onto something vitally important when he promises us in 4-7 that if we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. You see, even in our frailty, God wants us to fight. And so as we sincerely pray for his deliverance, we must trust that he will graciously equip us with the means to do battle. And we must also be willing to use the means he provides. And there are several means which we can discern as we consider Jesus' own temptations and how he faced them. First, watchfulness. Consider for a moment Jesus' own trial in the garden. As he looked squarely at the awful pain he would soon endure. When his soul was deeply grieved and the impulse to abandon his mission to die a sinner's death on our behalf was most keenly felt, what was he doing? He was watching. Although he repeatedly told his disciples who were with him to watch as well, knowing that they too would soon be put to the test, they shut their eyes, but he alone remained watchful. Are you still sleeping and resting? He asked them. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Jesus was watching. What about you? Are you watching? Are you on the lookout for Satan's attacks in your own life? We all know just how constant and powerful his attacks are, don't we? Indeed, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5, 8, to be on the alert for our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. But you know, watchfulness doesn't just mean being attentive to Satan's temptations. It also means being mindful of how to flee from them. Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear and that he will always provide the way of escape. Friends, in the midst of temptation, do you know how to flee? Are you aware of the exits God provides for you? Joseph was. As Potiphar's wife grabbed his cloak and urged him to lie with her, what did he do? He didn't dally. <laughs> he left his garment in her hand and fled through the door. Friends, we must be watchful. Second scripture, 
One of the things Paul reminds us of in 2 Timothy 3.16 is that all of Scripture is profitable for reproof. Indeed, it is the sword of the Spirit. And we see this clearly as we consider how Jesus rebuked Satan in the wilderness. Turn these stones into bread, Satan said to him. And Jesus, although he was utterly famished, responded, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, Jesus knew Scripture. He was immersed in it, and he fought with it. It reminds me of Christian's fight with the hideous monster Apollyon in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And when Christian was at the brink of death, he reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And with that, he gave the wicked beast a deadly thrust, which made him fall back as one that had received a mortal wound. Oh, what a weapon God has placed in our hands. And what food for our souls. Are you being nourished by it? Are you drinking it in? Do you see that it has been given to you as a mighty weapon to protect you against the enemy's attacks? The psalmist says in Psalm 119.11, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Friends, we need scripture. Third, fellowship. <coughs> you know, sometimes in the midst of our own suffering, we fall more deeply into despair thinking that we must bear our burdens alone. This is the devil's lie. Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. As we face temptation, God intends us to be a support to one another, to bear one another's burdens, and to provide comfort for those in need. But this also means that we must be willing to receive the comfort others provide, doesn't it? Consider again Jesus' suffering in the garden and the solace he sought in the fellowship of Peter, James, and John. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, he said to them. Remain here and keep watch with me. It reminds me of the scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <coughs> when Susan and Lucy find Aslan walking alone through the woods on the night of his death. I should be glad of company tonight, he said to them. And as they plodded along, and the great lion's head began to droop, and as he stumbled and gave a low moan, Susan asked, are you ill, dear Aslan? No, he said. I'm sad and lonely. Lay your hands <coughs> on my mane so that I can feel you are there and let us walk like that. Friends, we need one another. Jesus knew that. Do you know that? Consider, too, that when we pray for deliverance, we pray, deliver us from evil. It's a corporate prayer that we pray. We're in this battle together, and so we need one another. And finally, prayer. Perhaps it should go without saying, 
on a sermon on the Lord's Prayer, particularly on this petition. That prayer is one of the means which God intends for us to use as we face life's trials. And yet, too often we neglect it, don't we? Why do we do that? Are we not convinced of its power? Do we not really believe that God is listening? You know, I'm reminded of the scene in 2 Kings 6 when the enemies of God surrounded his people with a great army. And Elisha's servant cried out in despair, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha, full of compassion and knowing that God's deliverance was at hand, he prayed for him. O oh Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw the flaming armies of God surrounding them. Friends, our Father is with us. He hears our prayers, and he is powerful to save. And this is why we see Jesus praying faithfully in the midst of his own trials. At the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, as he prepared to display the wonder of his power, even over death, he raised his eyes to heaven and he prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. In the garden, when his soul was in anguish at the cup he must drink, he fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet, not as I will, but as you will. And in the hour of his greatest need, as he hung on the cross, enduring the taunts of the crowd and bearing the sins of the world on his shoulders, in confidence, again, he lifted his voice to God and prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Oh, what a gift! It is to be able to pray to our Heavenly Father in the midst of our trials. What consolation awaits. It reminds me of what we sing in the old hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and often escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. Friends, do you believe this to be true? Do you trust that God is with you and that he's listening? Do you turn to him in the midst of your trials, knowing that he alone is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble? We must be a praying people. Friends, in the midst of this hostile world, this petition and these means are precious gifts, which God has given to us to use for our protection but even as we seek to be faithful, we must always bear in mind that we are weak pilgrims, prone to wander. And so in our foolishness and pride, there'll be times when we neglect these precious gifts, perhaps often, and we'll stumble. And we'll feel the overwhelming burden of our sin and, like Paul, cry out, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? But may it be that in those times, we once again, like Paul, turn to Jesus, our mighty deliverer, and proclaim with him, thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. At this time, I, um, we're going to go ahead and conclude by together praying the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray. So please pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.